0: Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Loopcast. I'm Chelsea Damon, and today we have Philip Smythe back on the show. Philip has been a guest on the Loopcast a number of times, so we're happy to have him back because, of course, Philip is da-bomb, and he's here to talk about a topic that makes his world go boom. So welcome back on the show, Philip.
1: Thank you for having me back, and I'm sorry that I'm such a pile of semtex.
0: (laughs) So today we're going to talk about Shiite proxies in Iraq. There's been lots going on in Iraq with the current election season, so it's going to be a great topic. For listeners that might not know of Philip, he is currently the Sorov Fellow at the Washington Institute of Near East Policy, and he studies Shiite militia groups and all things Shiite militia, <laughs> so perfect person for this topic. He also was a researcher at the University of Maryland and he has created the blog Hezbollah Cavalcade, and he's also the author of the 2015 Washington Institute of Near East Policies, monograph The Shiite Jihad in Syria and Its Regional Effects. I highly recommend reading that if you're interested in this topic, so please remember to do so. One other thing that we want to mention is that we are on Spotify now. We're also on iTunes and Stitcher and Patreon, so if you think about it, We um, love bringing you interesting topics with informative guests on timely discussions around security issues and tech, so if you like the show, please support us, and we very much appreciate that. So, Philip, just welcome to the show, now that we've gotten all the technical talking out of the way. So, why don't we start off by talking about the recent Iraqi parliamentary elections, which have been going on. So, what's been happening?
1: So right now, um, Sayyid Muqtada Sadr, who a lot of people will remember as the scabrous uh, cleric who commanded, uh, this is when the Americans were still occupying Iraq, um, commanded the al Mahdi or the Mahdi army, um, you know, and he's kind of developed from there. Um, he essentially took around 30% of the seats in parliament, which means he is the the front-runner, although I don't want people to think that Muqtada Sadr himself is going to magically become prime minister. That's not the role that he plays, Um, but he he has his guys who are really leading the charge. Uh, Behind him are the people in the Fatah alliance, uh, and that uh, alliance, that coalition, uh, is essentially controlled by the Iranians. Uh, The leading element in it is Hadi al-Amri, who is the uh, Secretary General of the Butter Organization, Butter Organization, just think of an Iraqi uh, uh, replica of Lebanese Hezbollah, um, and this group has been around in one form or another uh, since the early 1980s, uh, essentially began as the armed wing for a larger umbrella that the Iranians uh, were trying to cultivate um, and you know, fight Saddam Hussein. So you have that, and then Actually, in fourth place, uh, you have our chosen man, uh, Haider Al Abadi, uh, who is the prime minister of Iraq, uh, and now he's kind of in an interesting position. Uh, and there are a number of other parties that have have kind of come out and done their own thing. But that's kind of the general look at things. I mean, it's it's interesting to see, you know, uh, Souther's win is being recognized as kind of a a. Uh, refutation of the line that the Iranians are going to completely take Iraq, and this is interesting because Sadr uh, was, for all intents and purposes, an Iranian proxy uh, in Iraq uh, to fight the Americans for quite a while, but You know, And this is something that I've actually concentrated and worked on actually in Shia Jihad in Syria and its regional effects. I have a whole section on Sadr's problems. This is before anyone actually cared about it, Um, uh, his problems that he had with the Iranians. Uh, And the Iranians have had a lot of difficulties with him. He's tried to exert his own independence. Uh, He's tried to use Iraqi nationalist language and themes also wrapped within his own kind of uh, Shia Islamist uh, kind of line of thought. To promote himself. I mean, it's interesting in this in this uh, election he actually had an alliance with the Communist Party, the Iraqi Communist Party. Which um, you know, there, there's a few different uh, routes for this that make it even more interesting. One, if you're a Shia Islamist and you're aligning with an avowedly atheistic party, it doesn't always send you know the best the best message. And on top of that, um, he actually his his former. Uh, the, for, the cleric who is formally advising him on religious matters, who uh, is you know completely in line with the Iranian thought, is actually based in Qom, um, uh, Ayatollah Hari, um told him many years ago, you know, you're not supposed to be involved in the elections in Iraq, and we don't want you aligning with secular um, politicians. I mean, and a few years later, you see him now aligning with you know the communist party. It's it's another kind of uh, hidden screw you to the Iranians, and not even all that hidden, uh, not even all that veiled um, uh, way to kind of, you know, poke at them. So that's been the kind of general situation that's happened.
0: So looking at the placemanship that these different figures have taken, I guess we could say, what does that mean in the big scheme of things? Because as you said, um, in fourth place, we have someone that the U.S., is a lot happier with them, I would say, the other candidates. So what does that mean in the greater context and also for Western interests in the region?
1: Well, I think I'll look at it first from American interests. And, you know, there have been some reports that are out that are saying, you know, it's interesting how the Americans are uh, not that uh, not that, that unhappy that Sadr came out ahead, um, I mean, I, I, I think that's the case in some respects, one, because the U.S. is essentially washing its hands of the Middle East. And you see this in Syria, you see it in Iraq, uh, you see it in a few other areas uh, in terms of uh, realignment for what really fits in with American interests. Uh, so you have those those issues that are there. And, and Sutter, who has not been all that quiet in his anti-Americanism and has actually incorporated it uh, into a lot of his... Uh, you know, his speeches and, and a lot of his other, I don't even want to call it ideology, because he doesn't really have a firm ideology, but his Iraqi nationalism, too, was, hey, I countered the Americans, and look, I pushed them out, but, you know, the U.S., given its weaker position now, especially vis-a-vis Iran, is now saying, well, Sadr wants to... Take the mantle, uh, take the, you know, take the mantle for being uh, a quote unquote anti Iran uh, politician, and, and at least he's better than having uh, al Amri uh, and the Fatah coalition, um, you know, take the take the show. Um, I mean, I think that in in many respects shows the weakness of the American position you know, in the region right now, uh, and also shows a continuation of, you know, Obama policy right into uh, the Trump policy uh, in terms of, okay, well, what can we really execute on the ground and what are our real goals? Uh, I think we're just going to continue, you know, the, the anti-ISIS campaign and then we'll we'll kind of play it in an ad hoc form later on. I don't think that Sauder uh, is, you know, he, he, he's not the type of person who wants to run um, a, a I guess a, a country that would be adverse to Western business or anything else. I mean, Iraq needs Western investment. They can't, you know, and he can't just take Iranian investment. Um, I mean, beyond that, Sadr has, and this was as a, a show to counter the Iranians, um, you know, was visiting with the Saudis. Uh, and that was a that shook up a lot of things within his own uh crowd, within his own setup, um, because you know there were many years where the Sauterists were, you know, talking about how the Wahhabis and, and, and uh you know Saudis need to be crushed. Um but it shows kind of his own uh, pragmatism that's there. Um, I mean, I don't want to overstate it. I, I think a lot of people get a little too excited, and then a narrative forms from that. You know, for instance, well, uh, Sadr is the, the best Iraqi nationalist, and uh, he's going to be good for Iraq. And yes, there are Sunnis supporting him, and it's showing, you know, that, that he can counter the Iranians. Uh, but I think the pragmatism that Sadr shows is far deeper, and I think he does this because, you know, he, he plays his own game. Uh, and his own game uh, has also included not responding to American policymakers who have uh, tried to reach out to him in the past. You know, he wants to show that he can be, you know, the 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 big leader in Iraq, uh, and that's not always all that positive when it comes to, you know, what you want to do for policy. For business, though, I don't know if it's entirely negative. Though uh, there have been examples where, you know, solderists have attacked. You know, different private, uh, different private businesses, um, but this was, again, during the war, and there were lots of other different interests that were going on, and plus you can get that from a variety of other groups, too. So, you know, kind of a mixed bag, but, uh, you know, for, uh, for the American policy establishment, uh, it's uh, a little bit better than uh, dealing with a completely Iranian-controlled uh, Iraq.
0: And on that point, you've touched on it a little bit just recently at the starting of the talk but how can we understand the outcome of these elections within the framework of Iran and its shiite proxies
1: well this is this is the thing that i always uh, you know have a, a lot of trouble approaching because, again, it always comes down to these, these very binary, very black-and-white narratives that you get out of D.C., uh, and you get out of a lot of other capitals, uh, where they will say, well, the, you know, the Iranians want to take Iraq. Well, no duh, they want to take Iraq. Come on. Um, but I think there is uh, you know, this, this trend to see everything through, let's say, an American lens of instant gratification. Well, the Iranians always want to press their interests and take as much as they can, the Iranians are playing a long-term game. Um, And yes, do I think that they actually wanted to win the elections? Of course they did. Uh, They fielded a coalition of pretty much every one of their uh, proxy groups and every one of the groups that they can control. When I say control, I mean fully control. Um, and the, this, the groups ranged from Sauterist splinter groups to Butter uh, to a number of other, you know, hardcore Homenist groups that have been around for quite a while. Um, so it's, you know, it's not as if they were not trying to make a show for themselves. And they did. They performed pretty well. I mean, coming in uh, second place, yeah, they still have to form coalitions and see what they can they can pull off. Um, but they did perform pretty well. I mean, this is, you know, one of the... the the steps in terms of, uh, I guess the steps in, in how the Iranians wish to uh, dominate both Iraq and also the region. Um, and I think that they're still playing their long game in terms of trying to cultivate more allies on the ground, trying to create more splinters within opposition factions, um, and also just trying to generally exert their influence so that they push the Americans out. Um, and I think that they've done remarkably well. Um, you know, since, uh I want to say at least 2012. I mean, if we're talking about this from the American pullout on, uh, they have been able to pull off some incredible uh, uh, moves in terms of of pushing the Americans further out and and hurting American influence. And and this isn't because. They are, you know, 10-foot-tall supermen. No. Uh, A lot of it also comes down to a general acquiescence by Washington, and this goes by, you know, from the Obama administration on, uh, to say, well, you know what, let's just leave more to them, and let's just uh, leave more to this new uh, setup that's going to happen in the region where the Iranians have more power. Um, So, I mean, they have benefited greatly from that. Um, But I think in terms of big picture, in terms of... uh, Actually, I should say a, a, a smaller picture within it, uh, within Iraq. Um, I, I don't want people to think that you know, and this is another line that was somehow cast uh, during uh, the height of the the you know Iraqi Shia foreign fighters who were going into uh, Syria. They were being funneled there by. Uh, Iran, um, there was a lot of sentiment that was around that just said, "Well, yeah, um, Iran now just controls Iraq um, I, I wouldn't you know I would never go that far, uh, mainly because you do have a lot of nationalist sentiment and also a lot of anti Iran sentiment from uh, many Iraqi Shia um, and you know it's it's a more nuanced anti Iran kind of position, and for some that might not be good enough. Um, but it is there. I mean, it's representative in how Sutter, uh, you know, came to uh, the, the front of these, these elections. Um, but I think, you know, in terms of where where the United States is, this is not a very good position for us. No matter how we wish to spin it, it's not. We sacrificed thousands of lives, uh, billions of dollars, and this is the end result. A, a cleric who is openly anti-america um and has been for some time and has killed americans and now we are looking to him and i guess we could say this is the the normal kind of realpolitik and how things work but he is now kind of leading the show and oh by the way the iranians who also pushed him to kill americans uh back in the back in the day but also had their own groups doing the same thing they're also you know doing pretty damn well within (laughs) within iraq this is not really a A good situation for the United States, no matter how we wish to dice it up.
0: So, elaborating on two things that you just said, you were mentioning about the nationalist environment in Iraq, and al-Sadr seems to be an Iraqi nationalist, and then thinking of Iran, how do we understand his relationship with Iran in this nationalist
1: context? So it's it's rather complex, and and I, I mean I know that that's the general answer people will give, um, but I'll try to I'll I'll try to you know give you some dates and other situations and things that have happened. So from around 2004 on, uh, Sadr, uh actually had a lot of Iranian backing for his Um But that didn't mean that the Iranians were not trying to craft splinters out of his group whenever there was pressure back. Because there were different factions within this Jaisal Mahdi, within the Mahdi army, um, that were sometimes more nationalistic in terms of, hey, we don't need to deal with the Iranians. You know, we are Iraqi Shia, and we should really lead the way on on everything. Um, And... You know, right now, those are really the groups that have come to the foreground in terms of, you know, how Sadr has looked at it. But also, there was a lot of Iranian pressure on Sadr. You know, Sadr was still executing his own policies on the ground that didn't always go with what the Iranians... Always wanted. Um, he actually went to went back to Iran and was in uh, exile in Iran uh, for a period because he was, you know, "quote unquote" doing religious training. But that's where he had a big disagreement with, uh, you know, the Iranians, but also uh, with the clerics that were supporting him, and they were very public about, you know, disavowing any connection with him. Uh, it caused kind of a, a big issue. Um, now, going back to those splinter groups, if we're we're talking about what happened during from 2000, I want to say 2006, uh, right until the present day. Uh, the Iranians have not stopped pressuring Sadr in terms of creating or, or, or crafting splinter groups. The most recent one that's, we could call it a, a more major group, was Jaish al-Muammal, uh, which was formed in, uh, or I want to say, mid-2016. Uh, mid uh, they officially announced their existence at, at around end of June, um, but this was a group that was formed out of, you know, uh, a number of uh, different commanders who were in, I want to say, uh, northwestern Baghdad, who were with his successor group to the Mehdi army, which is called Saray al-Salam, or the peace companies. Um, but, I mean, what, what I'm trying to get at, with, instead of like going into the weeds on the Shia militia stuff... Um, the Iranians have not stopped trying to craft splinters, they have not stopped trying to recruit members from Sadr's camp, um, and of course this has not left Sadr very happy. Um, how that fits into the Iraqi nationalist standpoint, I think we need to you know, understand what do we mean by Iraqi nationalist, because there are plenty of people who are in Khomeinist organizations completely controlled by the Iranians that will say, no, I'm an Iraqi nationalist. Um, you know what exactly do we get by this? Um, I think when we're talking about that, he does not. I, I don't know where he he fits in because I, I mean I've read through a lot of his statements, um, but I haven't really seen anything clear in terms of where he fits in terms of a transnational ideology. Uh, the Iranians and their their proxy groups and other groups they control adhere to a trans uh, in our transnationalist. Um, I guess we could call it uh, Shia Islamist ideology called Absolute Wilayat al uh in Arabic. Um, where their loyalty, their religious loyalty, their social and political loyalty goes to uh, uh, the supreme leader in Iran um, who is uh, Ali Khamenei um, Sadr does not really have that and Sadr instead has kind of uh, pumped up how uh, he views Iraq in terms of not just uh, Shiism, but also for all Iraqis um, he actually won over a good amount of uh, Iraqi Sunnis despite the fact that his own group was involved in a lot of nasty ethnic cleansing, and there was a lot of uh, really awful attacks that were that, were, uh, that they were involved in uh, targeting uh, Iraqi Sunnis. But over the years, he's been able to demonstrate that he's reined in a lot of the more sectarian elements. Beyond that, he has criticized uh, Iranian-backed groups, which have taken on a far more sectarian approach. Uh, he's also criticized the groups outright and called them uncontrolled militias a number of times. Uh, so there's that. I mean, he's been really showing, you know, even with his supporters, um, there was a situation, and this was a, a, about a year ago, uh, where his supporters were were protesting corruption. This is like a big line in Iraq. Everyone says they want to fight corruption one way or another. Um, but he has come out and really said, well, the corruption is so nasty that I'm going to you know, field people and and put them on the street. So, I mean, he actually took over the green zone. I'm sure you remember when that occurred. And that actually happened twice. Uh, and this was in order to say, look, I have the power to physically overwhelm you guys in the green zone and uh, and and create you know, different policies if you're not going to act for you know the goodness of the Iraqi people. This is a, a move that he actually pulled in the past um, where he actually would take over, and, and, and it's kind of an interesting little aside, he would take over electricity plants uh, that were supplying electricity to Sadr City because when the Americans were there, they said, no, there's a curfew and this is how long you get electricity, this is how long you get. You know, these different things that you need, and he would just keep it running. Now, it would often ruin the, the power plant because you had these inexperienced people who didn't know what they were doing, and it would screw things up for you know a couple of weeks afterwards. But it was a way to signal to supporters and potential supporters that, no, I really do have your best interests at stake, and I, I want to support whatever you guys are doing, and I want to help you. Um, And he's been able to convey that message extremely well. Uh, He's also mixed it in with a level of anti-Americanism. Let's not doubt that uh, there's extreme anti-Americanism within Iraq for a variety of reasons, not just uh, associated with uh, the U.S. invasion of the country uh, way back in 2003. Um, But he's been able to play all these messages. He's been able to play the message of, I expelled a foreign occupier, meaning the Americans, the Brits, um, and then beyond that, I'm, I'm expelling yet another foreign occupier in a different respect, meaning the Iranians. And look at all the problems I've had with them. And look, I'm trying to pull different groups into the fold, meaning even communists, uh, uh, Iraqi Sunnis. Um, I'm talking to other different sects, other other uh, you know Shia who are within other communities, uh, and I'm trying to present you know a good face. Uh, for what the Iraq of the future will be, where there will be religion, uh, but there will also be you know, a good level of I want to say independence from other actors. I mean, this is the other the signal that he was sending by reaching out, or when he uh, was reached out to, and also when he reached out to uh, the Saudis, uh, it was to show, look at this independence, and look at the pragmatism I can exhibit. We're living in a new world, and, and this is kind of the Iraq that we need to uh, push forward. Now, Messages are one thing. Reality is another thing. Um, I, I don't want people to think that there aren't elements within uh, Sutter's camp that are not incredibly violent, uh, that are not, you know, arresting people and bringing them to certain religious courts. I was involved in, in uh, examining something a little while ago where, you know, one of these Sutter-controlled religious courts was, you know, bringing somebody up, uh, because they accused him of converting, uh, you know, converting to a different religion when in fact that didn't happen. There were also, uh, other slaughterists who were going around smashing, uh, you know, liquor stores and whatnot. So don't think that this is, you know, completely gone that, you know, other, other, uh, uh, things are completely gone out, you know, that are bad, uh, out of his repertoire, but he's been able to kind of push this message that, you know, Look at how bad these these other guys are. I mean, he's he's actually also said this, and I'm sorry to kind of jump around here because a lot of things are hitting me all at once. Um, There's the whole push by him to say we need technocrats that are in office that can run things because we've had too much of this old school, you know, the, the old families that are there. And it's interesting, even more interesting given, you know, Sadr would not be in the place that he is if he were not connected to, you know, the Sadr clerical family, you know, a major Shia clerical family for uh, quite a while within Iraq. But still, um, he's come out and said, these old school guys, they're all corrupt. They're all awful. They don't know how to run anything. They're just lining their own pockets. And this has resonated with a lot of Iraqis. And it's also kind of a direct criticism not just of the Iranian-controlled figures who are in Iraq's government, who in many cases are also lining their own pockets, Um, but it's a criticism of uh, other people in the Dalwa party. Um, For instance, even even Abadi. Abadi tried to market himself as someone who would pull in uh, different technocrats into the Iraqi uh, governing system. Um, And people have looked around and said, okay, well, then what are we getting out of that? So he's been able to play off of that, too. That feeds into this whole uh, Iraqi nationalist picture. Um, The other thing is, you know, with the Iranian-backed groups, they often will take on lines that are far more regional in terms of outlook. So we have to remember, they were sending people to Syria, um, you know, fighting in another war that for many Iraqis just simply didn't involve them. It was a war to support Bashar al-Assad. even though it was marketed as one of defending the site of Zainab Shrine. Um, Sadr did not come out and publicly support that at all, uh, meaning that conflict. Um, he actually pushed against it. Um, and you have them uh, talking about issues in Yemen, in Bahrain, here, there, everywhere. Um, Sadr has maintained kind of a more... Uh, mid-level approach when it comes to a lot of these issues where he will occasionally, and I always find it interesting when he does, he'll send signals, and mostly they're aimed at sending signals to the, uh, the Iranians where, you know, they'll talk about Bahrain and so he'll release like a song about, you know, fighting for, for Bahrain's liberation, but he won't really, you know, do all that much. Uh, or he'll meet with Said Hassan Nasrallah, uh, the Secretary General of uh, Lebanese Hezbollah, um, but he, you know, will not start adopting whatever Hezbollah tells him to do. Um, so there are, like, these little messages that he sends to his base and also sends to, you know, other regional actors that, yes, you know, I have relationships with everyone. I'm trying to maintain all the connections, but I'm doing it for, you know, the the... I guess the glory of Iraq and to support the country uh, and to support its interests as opposed to, you know, I'm just doing this for an outside actor. That's, that's really been a core message that he's been, been trying to exercise for at least what now, at least 10 years.
0: In your opinion, how does the Sunni community in Iraq view Sadar? We've heard a lot of, Whispers of increased sectarianism in the region. So, what are your thoughts on this?
1: Yeah, well, sectarianism really isn't going anywhere. And I, I always, this is another thing. There's a lot of articles that are out there saying. I remember there's one I think in Foreign Policy uh, that was saying this is the the, the end of uh, you know sectarian Iraqs. The first uh, uh, example of of a post sectarian Iraq. Well, let's let's call a spade a spade here it, it's a realization that the Shia make up the majority of the country they have militarily overwhelmed uh, a, you know an extremist Sunni group which is the uh, which was is which also killed a lot of Iraqi Sunnis um, there have been a lot of Iraqi Sunnis that have been displaced they're still living in internally displaced persons camps um, so I mean it, you still have these these issues and a lot of things going on but it's a realization that this is the reality that is now it's kind of like When, you know, a lot of people realize that Saddam Hussein is going to be dictator of Iraq, okay, we can either deal with it or, you know, we can push against it, but when we've pushed against it, it didn't really work all that well. Um, It's it's kind of coming to that, you know, people have come to that conclusion, but I I think it goes beyond that. Um, I don't want to, you know, say that, you know, it's not an important thing that Iraq had a successful democratic election, but you'll also notice there wasn't all that much turnout. In terms of the election, and yeah, you could blame that on on terroristic threats from uh, the Islamic State. You can blame that on a lot of different issues, um, but you know, a lot of these, a lot of a lot of different issues are kind of burning under the surface. Now, how that affects sectarian issues, Sutter has been very smart in terms of. And I'm, I'm sorry, I'm turning this all into the Sutter podcast, but you know, Sutter has been very uh, intelligent in terms of how he's cultivated. Sunni support. And I think the Sunnis now being – and I I hate speaking of of Sunnis like they're just this one block because they're not. Uh, It's like speaking about Shia as if they are one block or Kurds as if they are one block. That's not how it works. Um, But if you're looking in general, there are many Sunnis in Iraq who are saying, okay, this is the new situation – I still don't like the Iranians, I still don't, you know, these guys have really been pushing a lot of nasty stuff, their groups are awful, their groups are highly sectarian, and Sadr, who is a Shia cleric, uh, somebody who's been quite vocal against uh, the uh, the Iranian-backed groups, you know, maybe he is actually a, a, a kind of small hope that we can we can put in. You know, somebody, somebody in there pushing against them is better than no one, uh, and also his history uh, in terms of what he's done to, you know, show that he is not, you know, beholden to sectarian interests, he's been pretty good over the past couple of years. Um, I mean, it's been mixed, but he's been better than a lot of the other ones, and he's trying to show that he is... You know, on that kind of Iraqi nationalist track. I mean, there's also something I I forgot to mention before in terms of how Sadr has been kind of crafting this Iraqi nationalism. It's something that's very important. If you show linkages with the Iraqi army, because it's been one of the prime institutions for the country for decades, um, And a lot of people have been employed by it. Um, And what he did was with his militia, Surah al-Salam, the successor group to the Mahdi army, he tried to integrate them early on with the Iraqi army. Yes, they maintained their own, or at least the image that he was doing so. um, He, you know, tried to show that he was... uh, Sending his guys to do training with the Iraqi army that they are fighting alongside the Iraqi army, that he refused to take orders within the uh, Heh Shaabi uh, apparatus, which is controlled by iranian backed guys um, you know he refused to take orders from those people uh, and instead was along with the army. Um, that sends another message to sunnis who say well the army is still an institution that is it hasn't been completely corrupted by sectarian interests or by you know foreign states and there's still a good level of nationalism there and Sadr is trying to put his money where his mouth is and and deal with that so you know if you're if you're sitting there and you're a displaced person who's sunni who's going this is the new situation this is how we're going to have to deal with things and i still want to push back against you know uh different elements within the country I don't like, uh, well, I might as well go with him. And he's also been sending the right messages in terms of, you know, different different rhetorical, uh, you know, different statements that he's been pushing out. Well, okay, I'll do that. And I, I think a lot of it comes down to that. Um, but, I mean, I'll tell you just from, from personal conversations, and I I, I, mean, I usually like to use anecdotes, but I think in this case it's it's problematic to do so. Um, you know, talking to a lot of Iraqis that I know, and this is Shia, Sunni, um, a lot of Christians too. Um, it, there's, it's kind of a mixed bag uh, in terms of how they they see what's really going on. I don't think any of them is all that or con- all that confused in terms of thinking that you know, oh, sectarianism is gone now. They they don't believe that at all. Um, but the I guess the big picture has changed quite a bit, and now you have to operate under I guess that I guess that that kind of I don't know <laughs> this new situation, for lack of better terms.
0: What about the Fatah alliance and its relationship with Iran? How can we understand this relationship and in the context of Iraq?
1: Well, one uh, Fatah, the the coalition is. Uh, th- there's no other way to put this. They are controlled by the Iranians. That's that's kind of end statement. You have major organizations that are controlled by the Iranians, um, that are kind of the headliner groups. So, um, I mean, just for instance, I'm trying to think of, of a few of them. One of them is Harakat al-Araq al-Islami. So this is the group that their military section is called Katab al-Imam Ali, which uh, split from Muqtada uh, Sadr. is a completely Iranian-controlled group, sent a lot of guys over to Syria – um, you know they don't really hide their alliances with the Iranians. You have uh, another one like the Butter Organization. I mentioned Butter before. Butter was created, um, you know back in the early 1980s, uh, and they were, you know, IRGC controlled. Hadi al-Amri it's reported, uh, who's their secretary general, who by the way was their their kind of headliner guy, um, was reported to be an IRGC commander in one respect or another. Uh, I mean, their former Butter's former secretary general was a man named Abu Mahdi al-Mohendis, who's now the, quote-unquote, second-in-command for al Shabi. He's actually the guy who really leads al Shabi, there's no doubt about that. Um, but, it, it, you know, he's also been listed as an advisor to uh, IRGC, the Islamic Revolutionary Guard Corps, uh, Quds Force. That's uh, the Iran, uh, the Iranians, uh, I guess, revolutionary Praetorian Guard slash uh, guys who execute their uh, Trotskyite-style policies abroad. Um, you know that's the commander of that, but he's been listed as an advisor to Qasem Soleimani on on Iraq uh, issues. So I mean, th- these are the kind of people and groups that you're dealing with in that kind of an alliance. And I mean, I, I think there's there's a lot of there are a lot of problems in terms of assessing. Uh, some of these groups, and I've heard this from other, you know, other people I, I respect quite a bit uh, who are in this field and and study uh, a lot of the groups, where they will say, "Oh, well, isn't it interesting how the militias are now going into politics?" Well, no, they've always been into politics. They've always had, you know, a They've always combined the military with the political because, for ideological reasons. Uh, they're not just reverting back to politics and, oh, we've gotten rid of the militia now that the Islamic State is gone. No, they're retaining all of that stuff. Sorry for that little aside, but it's kind of an important detail when you're looking at the, big, the bigger situation. Um, and with Fatah, um, you have this entire collection of these groups that not only wants to maintain you know the 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 institutionalization and also kind of the the main, they want to maintain kind of the the existence of al al shabi or we know it as the popular mobilization units or popul, popular mobilization forces they want to kind of keep that uh, and make sure that they're drawing government salaries in addition to their Iranian <laughs> salaries. Um, but they also are kind of, these are these are groups that really want to run Iraq the way Lebanon is being run by Lebanese Hezbollah, uh, where there's a state-within-a-state type of apparatus, while they are simultaneously trying to absorb as many institutions as humanly possible that are within the official government. Uh, you know, like I said before, the Iranian policy on a lot of this is, you know, you, you have a long-term strategy, and eventually you can swallow the whole thing, you know, so long as you get enough pieces of it in your mouth, uh, and that's what they're doing. And, I mean, Fatah coalition is, is a good example of, uh, you know, kind of what's going on in terms of how they're doing that within uh, the parliamentary process. And, I mean, I'll also say it's, it's rather interesting given, you know, initially when these Iran- a lot of these Iranian-backed parties were uh, slightly weaker – um, they would align with people like, like Nuri al-Maliki, um, who is, you know, now he's with Dawah Party, but he kind of has his own little thing going on there. But they aligned with him back in the day for this so-called state of law uh, coalition. Uh, and it's interesting nowadays that they kind of streamlined this quite a bit where they didn't really reach out to as many other parties like reaching out to Nuri al-Maliki uh, as a person who could be kind of the face of the coalition. But they just ran their own guys. Uh, they ran their own guy like Hadi al Amri. Uh, who's very very well known? Like, hey, we're going to run Hadi, Hattie and, and Hattie's going to be the be the the, the front man. Um, it definitely demonstrates that they view themselves as in a kind of far more powerful position within Iraq than they were previously. Of course, this doesn't mean that Iran has disconnected itself from Nouri al Maliki or any of these other guys, and it's not like they're shutting the doors on these other groups. But I think in terms of the the. I guess the, the image that you, that you look at, um, you kind of see that they see themselves as in a much better position. Um now in terms of what that means for Iraq, I mean I think we we've seen the writing on the wall for a number of years, uh, not just going back to twenty eleven, but you know, let's just take it more recently. Um the creation of you know, and I I think it's even a misnomer to say creation. Um when there were a number of militias that were formed uh around the time when uh, IS took Mosul and they were pushing towards uh, Baghdad uh, and they were doing a lot of nasty things, um, these militia groups backed by the Iranians finally won more, I guess one could call it institutionalized credibility. Uh, they were not just a bunch of guys in black pajamas and balaclavas marching around with Kalashnikovs or lighting off a bomb and you could watch, you know, watch the video on YouTube uh, and, and maybe have a conversation about it. Now they had actual identities. People knew about the groups because their cousins were fighting in them, or their brother was fighting in them. And they were, by the way, fighting the Islamic State, which was hated by pretty much every other Iraqi uh, that was not within the organization. Um, So, you had that, but then you also had government institutionalization, which gave them and fed them further legitimacy. Um, The creation of al-Hash al-Shabi is a good example of that. Uh, You know, this umbrella group that included not just the Iranian-backed groups, but also a lot of organizations that align themselves with uh, clerics like uh, Ayatollah Sistani. Um, and, and, I mean, you have this, this whole new setup where they are now kind of incorporated within the bigger sphere and the bigger picture. Um, they now have a, a larger presence uh, you know, within uh, government media. Uh, local politics, national politics, and also in the regional sphere. I mean, these are groups that also, no one really stopped them from sending uh, people to Syria. So They sent thousands and thousands of fighters to Syria, um, and they, they did that quite well. Uh, and now they also send regional messages that have affected Iraqi national policy when it comes to different uh, neighbors in the region. Uh, so that's going on, too. So, I mean, it is I don't want to say it's it's a paradigm shift because it, it's not it's been a slow burn the whole time, but we're now starting to see what the results are and I still think that that shift is going it's it's an ongoing shift um, it hasn't been finished yet obviously uh, and there's a lot of work that the Iranians need to do in order to you know fully get what they want and who knows if they'll ever get it but it's still you know an ongoing crusade for them.
0: Considering all of this, how could we compare Iran's involvement in Lebanese politics versus what we're seeing in Iraq right now? Uh,
1: I mean, I, I think in terms of drawing parallels to them, I mean, you're, you're dealing with different situations. But um, if you look at Lebanese Hezbollah, I mentioned that before, it's the creation of a state within a state uh, with a with a number. Of, I mean, in Iraq's case, it's with a number of groups that you're doing this, this quote-unquote, state within a state um, – and doing it through a number of different institutions. With Lebanon and Lebanese Hezbollah, you know, Lebanese Hezbollah controls large tracts of territory within Lebanon. Um, they, you know, have a, a, quite a dominant stake within the Lebanese government right now. Um, they've been able to form coalitions with different groups that, you know, will kind of further their interests and further their their desires. Um, so you see kind of a replay of that in, in, in many cases within Iraq. I think, that, I think the Iraqi groups, despite the fact that some of them are around the same age as Lebanese Hezbollah, uh, they took the example of Lebanese Hezbollah, which you know, ran uh, in the Lebanese elections in the early 90s. Um, you know, and they showed that they could get into different institutions to gain more power. They've used this model, and they're just now replicating it once more. Um, so that's kind of what you're you're seeing. It's it's a model that has worked quite well for the Iranians, and so you know, as a whole, in terms of controlling Hezbollah and controlling these other Iraqi groups, um, and it's also a model that works well for the organizations themselves. Uh, with Lebanese Hezbollah, it's slightly different from some of the Iraqi uh, models. Because why? I mean, in Lebanon, you do, you've never really had all that rate of a functional, centralized government. Whereas in Iraq, uh, there's been far more centralization. Am I going to say, it's, it's is it effective? Eh, n- not really. It hasn't always been. Um, I mean, Saddam Hussein has not, you know, when he, when he ran the show, he tried to have an extremely centralized government that would run a lot of different things. Um, but with this, if I'm running a, a group that you know, gets into parliament, you know, is able to uh, take control of a section of a ministry, that means a lot of money for me. It means a lot of power for me. It means a lot of influence that I can exert. And I think that a lot of these groups are building themselves up you know also through that um through saying, "Oh well, I can now employ you know party loyalists and people that I want to draw in uh, and work with them because I also have you know a, a seat in the ministry um I can also keep people on an official payroll. I can also do this, I can do that, I can do the other thing, but meanwhile, and this is a, a simultaneous move, uh build the loyalty for me and less so for." the state, until eventually we, we become the state. Uh, and I think that's really kind of the, the long-term plan that they're all trying to execute.
0: And you've touched on this slightly, Syria. I was wondering if we could talk a little bit about Syria. Of course, it's Iraq's next-door neighbor. So how has Syria and the war there changed Iran's relationship with Iraq and Iraqi
1: proxies? Um, I mean, I I would say quite a bit. Um, I'd say quite a bit for a few reasons. If you're shipping tens of thousands of young men and losing, uh, you know, numbers of them, um, and you've been doing this since 2012 at the very least, um, it, it certainly sends a message to the Iraqi population. It's, it's a couple mixed messages too. One, uh, a lot of Iraqis and it's a number of them that I've actually spoken to who have fought, you know, in Syria they don 't they 're not necessarily ideological people who are doing this because you know, Khamenei said that they have to go and fight in Syria. Um, a lot of them view this as oh we're we're doing shrine defense and for the Iranians this has paid off quite well because they've been able to say we were the leaders in the you know to defend uh said Zainab and to defend against the onslaught of the Islamic state which eventually you know took on Iraq. Um, and so for a lot of people they'll say well you know what they had a vision beforehand and maybe we should have listened to them. Also they Supplied, you know, these groups with arms, and they supplied them with money, and if you're a farmer who's out in Maisan, um and you're not earning any money, um, it's quite a lucrative trade. It also gives a lot of individuals on the ground a feeling or a sense of power, you know, if they are part of a, a larger group, and they've done all these heroic exploits abroad, um, it does have that effect. However. There's, on the flip side, the other effect, where you'll have some Iraqis say, yeah, the the Iranians used us as cannon fodder. We were just thrown into the front. Yeah, we were paid money, but the Iranians didn't send their own guys. That's the the impression that they have. Uh, Instead, they used Lebanese, Afghans, Pakistanis, uh, and Iraqis to fight their war in Syria. And what were we really doing in Syria anyway? Um, you know, we were bolstering uh, a guy who has caused a lot of problems. Meaning Bashar al-Assad, uh, who has caused you know some problems in Iraq. Um, and you know, why, why are we you know why are we really doing this? Did it really stop the the Islamic State's onslaught? Was this really about the Islamic State, or was it just about Iran gaining power not just over the region, but also uh, specifically, and this is within the Shia community, uh, growing their influence among different Shia. Um, and I think a lot of people have picked up on that one way or another. But what I have noticed, and this is kind of the, the deeper trend that's slightly more important, um, there's a, a general acceptance of Iran's presence as they are in the region now, uh, meaning their – I guess it, the increasing status of them as a regional player and as someone as – a, as a country that should have a voice in Iraq, it's more accepted. Uh, by a lot of Iraqis. And then I think the Syrian war really did allow for that because no one really put their foot down and said, no, you're, you're not going to keep recruiting people out of here. No, you're not going to keep doing this. No, you're not going to keep doing that. Um, and then when 2014 happened, well, final nail in the coffin for that one, because, you know, a lot of Iranian backed groups were the, even before, you know, the June onslaught of the Islamic State, um, you know, these were the groups that were already recruiting and, and trying to get people out to the field uh, before IS was reaching the gates of of Baghdad. So, you know, I, I think there are a lot of different. You know, it, it's it's affected a lot of different things. But what I would also say is, um, in another in another sphere that that deals less with Iraqi politics and deals more with regional politics and Iran's more grand strategic game, um, you now have tens of thousands of Iraqis who are trained, they have combat experience, they've fought within their organizations, uh, you gained a lot of loyalists this way, um, and maybe even gained a few ideological loyalists here and there. Um, but now the Iranians can say, we now have a far more effective Deployable and experienced uh, uh, fighting force. Now, who do you think they're going to use this fighting force against? Regional foes. I mean, yeah, fine. We can we can say that they were fighting a multitude of different enemies within Syria and doing this, that, and the other thing. But yeah, there's a, a bigger issue for, I guess, uh, on the American policy side, uh, and also for you know Gulf policy uh, and for European policy. Well, there, there's still ideological there's still an ideological line of thinking by the Iranians that they need to destroy the state of Israel, that they need to crush the Saudis, uh, that they need to, you know, vanquish different uh, regimes in the Gulf because they view them as uh, not just, uh, you know, power players in the region that could counter them, but, you know, on, on this ideological level, they, you know, need to crush because they are unjust rulers. Um, and I think now that you have tens of thousands of guys who are, you know, Good at their jobs, um, you know good fighters who have deployed before and understand the command structure and understand a lot of this stuff. Um, you got to keep you know using that and it brings this whole other army that the Iranians can use against these other these other foes uh, and I think that that's a, a far bigger issue than anything else
0: to wrap up the discussion and everything we've talked about, what does all this mean for the bigger picture of Iraq? And Iraq's relationship with its neighbors. Um, Give us your thoughts on that.
1: Well, I I think it'll. I don't want to predict what's going to happen within Iraq's politics because alliances come and go. Um, There's you know a lot of rhetoric that's thrown out by all sides and i think we need to look at what the iranian moves are right now how they are trying to uh build coalitions within the country because if they are able to pull something off against sutter uh if they're also able to co-opt him there's always the chance that they can change things within their favor um if they're able to block him uh for a good deal that could cause further internal tensions within Iraq. It could even lead to violence in some cases. It has in the past. Um, so there's always that. But in terms of how the region is looking at this, I, I, it comes back to something I said earlier. It's it's this acceptance of, you know, well, Iraq now is within Iran's sphere. Yes, there are internal uh, elements that push against it. But This is just kind of how the situation is. It's the acceptance of this that I think uh, is a far bigger issue. And, And I'm not saying it's like a new thing. That just kind of popped out of nowhere and, oh, you know, I can't believe we're saying this now. Um, It's taken some time to grow that, but I, I think that's a far bigger issue when you're looking at regional actors. How are they going to play the game? Now, the Saudis, I think, have actually executed a really intelligent policy where they have reached out to Shia actors within Iraq that have voiced their concerns about the Iranians. And the Iranians, of course, don't like to see that because they view, uh, you know, the Shia community as, I guess, their their own province. You know, how dare you try to get in here, Saudis? You know, you're, you're Sunnis, number one, and number two, you know, you, you initially had, you know, ideological elements within the country that were anti-Shia. You know, how dare you? Uh, but this is ours. You know, we are the true religious government on earth. Um, so you could see an increase uh, from certain Gulf states. That will reach out to different Shia actors within Iraq to say, "Hey, you know, maybe you've got, a, you know, maybe you need a friend in us." Uh, and I think that would, you know, it, it'll of course cause tension, but I don't see it as a, a bad policy to follow through on. Um, but further than that, um, let's say the Iranians somehow, you know, by magic, uh, pulled off a complete win within Iraq. Um, and, you know, they were able to dominate the entire field. And, and obviously, I think this election has shown that they they can't really pull that off. They're going to have to, you know, keep fighting this slow battle. But let's say they, they pulled something off that was much better. Um, I, I don't really I, – I mean, I, I see them as, as taking it as a sign that they're not only on the right path, but they can get even more aggressive. And from what I've noticed is even when they face setbacks, they still kind of turn on the aggression at other points because they view it as, okay – Crisis averted. We did well. We survived. You know, Okay, let's, let's go on to the next thing. I think the Syrian war, to go back to your, your earlier, earlier question, said to them, look at how well we did. We just need to push really, really hard on everything, on all fronts, because we can do it. No one's going to stop us. Uh, no one's taking it seriously anymore. We can do as we please. I think it, it also ref- it was reflected in you know, the Iraqi elections, too. Where, you know, the groups that they control, you know, and, and it's like an unabashed connection that these groups have with, uh, with Tehran, um, they maintain, you know, different messages in terms of, you know, the new situation in the region. Uh, no, we, you know, the, the message they would, they would kind of extol was, no, we are the true nationalists. No, we are, you know, by, by having these alliances and by having, uh, you know, these different connections, uh, we're truly doing what's best for the Iraqi people. Um, in terms of kind of how that, that affects the region, you know, I, I keep seeing it this way. It doesn't mean that in the Gulf and, and a few other areas, people aren't watching that and, and having a different response where they will say, well, see, the Iraqis are going along to the, the, uh, Iranian side. Um, so screw it, you know, l- you know, let them go down with, with the Iranian ship, um, and I, I mean, I, I think that that will have some effects in the future, depending on who wins out within certain policy circles. You know, either you take a more nuanced approach and see, you know, what you can suss out, and it's, you know, a lot of bad options, unfortunately, um, or, you know, people who will kind of take this more extreme, you know, polarized line and just say, well, we may have had people we could kind of work with in Iraq, but who cares? They're not doing what we want. Um, I mean, that could lead to you know, further crises later on down the line. Uh, But, you know, time will tell. I I guess we'll see.
0: Well, thank you, Philip. As always, it's a pleasure having you on the Loopcast and discussing these very interesting and
1: developing topics. Well, thank you for having me.